Good afternoon, everybody. It's so good to, to see at least you, maybe not your faces. I look forward to when we can do that. We're going to be continuing our series on Jonah. Um, welcome to all of you out there who are tuning in online whenever you get this. We're happy to have you here as well. Um, I'm Nathan Boyett, the pastor of Outreach and Mission here at Annapolis EP. Um, and uh, we are continuing and concluding our series in Jonah um, today, Jonah 4. Last week we were delighted and refreshed by Pastor Jim Ferguson as he talked about Jonah chapter 3 and our God who pursues us and produces fruit in us. Um, and the wonderful story of Jonah is that God was using Jonah to go to the Nineveh to do that. But at the same time, God was working in Jonah as well. Jonah 2 showed that Jonah began to realize his sinful rebellion, and he began to repent. And then Jonah 3 and 4 show us that God is still trying to do a little bit of work in Jonah's heart and life. And as we are about to go into Jonah 4, I want to share a personal story that will hopefully help you think about what Jonah was feeling. I want you to think, as I'm about to tell this story, of a time when you might have felt just an intense emotion so that you were almost unreasonable. Uh, when I had just graduated from college, I went to China as a missionary, where I ended up being for over six years. Uh, but right out of college, I went there as a single guy, and we, our organization went to a nearby country uh, to have a conference because we couldn't have big conferences, large gatherings there in China. And we went, it was a tropical country. And me being an intern, uh, I didn't get to decide. They just chose the cheapest hotel they possibly could for me. And it was basically these concrete bungalows that when we were in them during the day, it was like a hot furnace. And at night, it was just, <laughs> it didn't cool down at all. And so it felt like I was just baking all the time. There was no air conditioning in these. There were fans, but the electricity would cut out for three, four hours at a time. Every day there was over, well over 100 degrees, 100% humidity, and so I was just sweating all the time. Anybody who knows me knows that I don't like to feel really hot. And so I got pretty annoyed very quickly. But hey, I was a missionary and I was there for a conference. I should be happy, right? Um, beautiful place, we were on the beach. And one day we went to the beach and we got to, during the rest time, have a good time as uh, a team. And we went back to the room and I was so looking forward to taking a cold shower. And I got in the room and got in the shower. And I was just in cold water. Uh, the sand wasn't all off me yet. I started to shampoo up my hair, and the water cut off. It stopped. I'm just standing there. I'm like, okay, I'll just wait. Without like a minute going by, I'm just covered in sweat again. <laughs> it's nighty. I have shampoo, soap all over me, sand, and I'm just waiting. I'm waiting. Ten minutes. I called to my roommate, Dave, what's going on? He's like, I'll check at the front desk. He had taken the first shower, so he was fine. He went to the front desk. He comes back. He said, Nathan, they're not going to have any water for the rest of the day. And I just felt the anger rise up in me. And I grabbed a towel and put it around my waist. And I went to the front desk. Like, what do you mean there's not going to be any water for the rest of the day? Look at me. And the person was just like, I don't speak that much English. I'm sorry. And, uh, Basically, what the person did was they were very kind and gave me a couple of gallon drugs, and then I just rinsed myself off. But I was just so unreasonably angry. Uh, I felt at the time, in the midst of it, that I was justified. I wasn't. You know, there was explanations of why the water was cut out, but that was what was in my heart. And that's the approach in Jonah 4 today. So let's pick it up in chapter 1. 
But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, well, to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Did not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word that you have given to us so that we might know you better and we might be transformed by your wonderful grace. We pray that you would illuminate our hearts and help us to understand that you would challenge, convict, and encourage us and that you would speak through your message today. Pray this in Jesus' name. So not unlike me, hot, sweaty, covered in dirt, Jonah was exceedingly angry. In verse 2, it says, it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. The language here is actually even stronger contains in the English. It would be better translated as it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. What exactly displeased him enough that he viewed it as evil? What made him so angry? The it refers to Nineveh's repentance. The it refers to God relenting of his disaster and giving grace and forgiveness to Israel's hated enemies. The repentance of the Ninevites and the relenting of God from disastrous judgment greatly displeased Jonah so that he was angry. He viewed it as an evil. This is incredibly, sadly ironic. Jonah was angry and displeased because the mission God sent him on was successful. A commentator writes, passage says that it seems Jonah is more upset with Nineveh's deliverance than Yahweh was with Nineveh's sin. And so for Jonah, as he confronted this situation, the question, what is his response to God's extravagant grace going to be? And that's the question that will confront each of us at some point in our life. When we see God's abundant grace given to sinners, how are we going to respond? Of course, we know the right Christian Sunday school answer. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Of course, I'm happy when I see God give grace to sinners. Yeah, that's the right answer. But what about the person who has stolen from you? The person who hit your car and left? The rapist? The adulterer? The murderer? The person who has committed such a horrific sin against you or a person you love that you don't know if you or they will ever recover from in that sin? How can we respond to that? Grace extended to that type of person. 
Jonah's anger over the Ninevites' repentance and deliverance is ultimately self-centered. And this comes out in the passage in a very clear way. Jonah was viewing God's actions through a personal lens and also a national Israel-focused lens. He cared about Israel and himself. And we're going to see that in a couple of different ways. Jonah's self-centeredness is cited in his use of the first person. Look with me in verse 2 in his prayer to the Lord where he says, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew your gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live. Not unlike English, the original here does not need those eyes and me's repeated again and again. Jonah, the author here, is emphasizing the self-centeredness, the focus on himself. Any of us who have had or interacted with young children are familiar with this mindset. The, one of the very first words that a child learns, probably after dada, mama, and then no, is me and mine. But this is not just overcome when we grow out of the toddler years. No, we don't overcome it. We don't move on from it. We just get good at hiding it. One of my favorite comedians, Brian Regan, he has a sketch where he talks about adults when they have conversations. And he experiences this so often, how he uh, loves to tell the story of how he had his wisdom teeth extracted. And he said, he said, the conversation always goes like this. You know, when I had my two wisdom teeth extracted, he said, then somebody will come along and jump in and say, oh, that's nothing. I have four wisdom teeth extracted. And Brian Regan says, oh, I'm sorry to bother you with my nothing story. And he calls this person the me monster. I'm sure you guys have all interacted with people like this. Maybe you have been this person. I know I have. We want to talk about ourselves. We want to focus on ourselves. Though Jonah went to Nineveh and reluctantly proclaimed the message of the Lord. His mindset that caused him to flee to Tarshish hasn't changed. He still does not view God's grace extended to the Ninevites as a beautiful thing. He actually shows a shocking disregard towards the Ninevites. God had said that they will perish, all of them, 120,000. He could care less. He was on his way across the Mediterranean as far as he could go. Jonah knew God's character. He quotes it here in this prayer. He quotes God's abundant grace, his mercy, his slowness to anger, his steadfast love. But is this prayer a praise of God's character? No. He quotes God's character as a justification for why he is angry. He quotes God's character as a justification for why he views the Nineveh being forgiven as a bad thing. But the Lord is not content to leave Jonah to stew in his anger. And so he presses in, and in verse 4, he asks, do you do well to be angry, Jonah? Jonah doesn't answer, gets up and goes out of the city to the hill to watch and see what's going to happen in the Nineveh. But the Lord, as is so often the case, is not content to let his people stay in their sin. He wants us to grow and develop into the people he wants us to. So the Lord uses an object lesson to help Jonah understand what he's trying to teach him. He causes a plant to grow up and provide shade for Jonah. You see, Nineveh was in an area of the world that was intensely hot. It was near a desert, and so there was a scorching wind that would blow out towards the city and cause people to just bake and be so hot. And so Jonah was so happy for this plant to grow up and provide shade for him, so that it says he was exceedingly pleased 
a direct contrast felt about the city being spared. He's exceedingly pleased about this plant. A, day, a night passes, and the next day the Lord appoints a worm that eats the roots, and the plant withers and dies, so that Jonah becomes even angrier about the whole situation. And he says, please take my life, Lord. Again, he says it. The Lord says, Lord, he says, Jonah, do you do well to be angry about the plant? Jonah says, yes, I do angry, I do well enough, angry enough, I'm angry enough, angry enough to, he's just so frustrated about this. But the Lord is trying to drive home the object lesson. He says in verse 10, Jonah, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which being in a night and perished in a night. The word pity here might be understood as having compassion or a desire to spare someone or something, trouble or disaster. The Lord emphasizes that Jonah's pity here is not because he has a special relationship with the plant. It's not even because he has ownership of it or even that he put any effort into its existence. Now, Jonah's pity is entirely self-centered. He's frustrated and angry because it brought him comfort. It benefited him. So again, it's driving home Jonah's self-centeredness. Jonah's pity towards this plant is self-centered around comfort and benefit, but his lack of pity and his lack of compassion towards the Ninevites is self-centered because of the hate he has towards the Ninevites and the damage they have done to him and his nation. Some of you might be sitting there and questioning, you know, Nathan, isn't Jonah the hero of this story? Surely you're, you're wrong. This is the prophet of the Lord. How could he be having this anger towards people? In this book, he sub subtly emphasized this point. See, Jonah's twice repeated request for the Lord to take his life is an intentional echo of another passage, a passage where Elijah, one of the greatest prophets of the Testament and of Israel's history, said the exact same words. In 1 Kings 19, Elijah also asked that the Lord would take his life. The original readers would have known this because they were very familiar with the Bible and knew all the stories very well. See, Elijah said the exact same words right after his famous Mount Carmel confrontation with the prophets of Baal. I'm sure you're familiar. He and the prophets of Baal had a confrontation, and Elijah and the Lord demonstrated definitively that the Lord is Baal is nothing. Both Elijah and Jonah, after their ministries, went to a wilderness, a hot environment. They both took refuge under a shade plant. Elijah, room tree, Joshua, or uh, uh, Jonah, this, this castor oil plant is what it actually was. And they both cry out to the Lord and ask him to take their lives. Those are the similarities. The contrasts are very striking. Jonah had amazing ministry success. He said a couple of words and a whole city repented. <laughs> That's amazing. But he's displeased and angry. Elijah did an amazing work of God. Covered an altar in gallons and gallons of water and fire came down and consumed the whole sacrifice in the altar showing that God was God. But nothing happened. He was fleeing for his life the very next day from Baal and King Ahab. He felt like a failure. So he goes to this wilderness and asks that the Lord take his life. The contrasts are also in how they respond. Jonah stews and sits in his anger. The Lord gently probes, but he doesn't even answer. 
Elijah is comforted and encouraged by the Lord and then gets up and goes for 40 days to Mount Horeb, the mountain of the Lord, and meets with God and has an amazing vision of who the Lord is. This con intentional by the author. When we see God's abundant, extravagant mercy towards sinners, we can often respond in self-centered ways. Anger, being displeased, depression even. We respond this way because we are focused on our, we have a view that's inward focused instead of Godward focused. Some of this self-centered attitude can be seen in the movie Amadeus. I hope some of you guys are familiar with this. It's a movie that depicts a feud between two composers. Wolf, it doesn't sound fascinating, but it's an amazing movie. Uh, two composers, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart and Antonio Salieri. You guys are probably familiar with Mozart, not so familiar with Salieri. It's fictional, this isn't all true. Salieri was the Austrian court composer to Emperor Joseph II. He was incredibly successful. He, when he was a young man, wanted to be a singer, but he couldn't sing at all. Uh, and so he put all of his effort into being a composer, and he was appointed for life the court composer to Emperor Joseph II. He's much older. Mozart is this young, new musical talent on the scene. He's a genius, but he's also has no respect for authority, no respect for Salieri, not even any respect really for the emperor. He is just incredibly talented, but he's hedonistic. He goes to wild parties, he's drunk on fame, and he mocks everybody to their faces, especially Salieri. So Salieri is just filled with this hate and bitterness towards Mozart. And it's not even because Mozart mocks him. If you watch the movie, you'll see this. Salieri sees Mozart's genius, his effortless genius, where he just puts the music down on the page and it's already amazing. And Salieri is filled with jealousy and hatred. He has hatred both towards Mozart and towards God. Throughout the movie, a mixture of uh, Salieri talking about the past as an old man and the actual events. Throughout the movie, there's scenes where Salieri is praying to God about how much he hates Mozart and how much he hates God. And listen to one of these prayers. He says to God, you chose for your instrument a boastful, lustful, smutty, infantile boy, and give for me, give me for reward only the ability to recognize the incarnation of your talent. And then he says to God, because you are unjust, unfair, unkind, I will block you. I swear it. I will hinder and harm your creature as far as I am able. I will ruin your incarnation. In the movie, Salieri plots and schemes of how he's going to basically kill Mozart. And then he's going to steal one of Mozart's masterpieces and plays, play it at Mozart's funeral and tell everybody that it's his. This is just amazing hatred and bitterness. Salieri had no reason to be like this. He was wildly successful. There was any number of musicians who would have loved to be in his shoes. He was an accomplished composer, but he was not satisfied with the gifts God had given him. Instead, he was bitter and angry beyond measure at God and at Mozart. And Jonah was not unlike this. It seems Jonah was quick to forget the, mercy, the grace that the Lord had extended him, not just two chapters earlier in Jonah chapter two. When Jonah was delivered out of the belly of the fish, the whale, in Jonah 2, he had acknowledged the Lord's punishment. In 2.6, he had prayed, Yet you, Lord, have brought my life up from the pit. 
And then in 2.9, he further acknowledged salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah was all about God's grace and salvation for himself, his nation. But once it got outside of his comfort zone, he was not okay with it. It made him angry, made him uncomfortable. God involves us in his mission and his work, not because he needs us. Jonah is a perfect example of that. He spoke a couple of words. God could have sent anybody to do that. No, God involves us in his mission and his work because he wants to work in us as he works through us. He wants to be changing us on us to refine us and help us grow into the people he wants us to be. Jonah obviously needed work. Each of us need work. I know I do. Where is God working on you? What are the rough edges that need smoothing? Each of us needs to do some hard work of self-examination. This requires time. It requires thought. It requires the willingness to have your sinful heart and actions exposed. It's not comfortable. It's vulnerable. It's awkward. I would challenge each of you to give permission to your loved ones. Let them tell you the rough edges they see that poke them and prod them, hurt them. Give them permission to tell you that. And don't be offended when they do. <laughs> our self-centered responses can often show us our idolatry that's really in our heart. Tim Keller, writing about Jonah, this, he says, as long as serving God fit into Jonah's goals for Israel, he was fine with God. As soon as he had to choose between the true God and the God he actually worshiped, he turned on the true God in anger. Jonah's particular identity was more foundational to his self-worth than his role as a servant of the God of all the nations. And this is so ironic because back in Jonah 2.8, Jonah had prayed, those who pay regard to vain idols make their hope of steadfast love. But when Jonah prayed that, he, he wasn't thinking of having an idolatrous view of Israel's place in the world or even of its importance. No, he was thinking of the pagan idols that the Ninevites were worshiping. But God knew the idolatry that was in Jonah's heart, how his nation had taken place of God's purposes and mission. If we are truly following the Lord who created the universe, then there will be times, aspects of our lives, aspects of our culture, aspects of our context, of here at EP, of America, that will make us uncomfortable because those things will be in contrast to God's kingdom and God's world revealed in the word, Bible. And when that discomfort arises, we should examine where is that coming from? What's causing it? So that we might repent of the idolatries that we've allowed to take God's place. So this self-centered response that we're talking all about, how do we move on from that? If Jonah, a prophet of the Lord, had it, what is our hope? We obviously can't change on our own. Definitely not. No, we need a transformation a transformation from God. Jonah was angry, displeased with God's abundant goodness and grace to the Ninevites. But the Lord is slow, patient, kind, abundantly good. Look, in verse 5 and 9, he doesn't thunder down in judgment. Jonah, why don't you get it yet? No. He says, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? He's gentle. He probes with questions. He patiently uses an object left to try to get Jonah to understand his heart. Jonah knew in his head God's character. He quotes Exodus 34 in his prayer. 
Exodus 34 was a central revelation to Moses and Israel when it sinned with the golden calf and he, God was going to wipe them off the face of the earth. Moses prayed, Lord, please, no, don't do that. And God said, yes, I will forgive them. And he revealed his character. And Jonah here in Jonah 2.2 quotes Exodus 34 in his prayer. He knew in his head who God was, that God was abundant in grace, slow to anger, merciful, steadfast in love. He knew in his head, but did he delight in it? In his, If he had, then he would have not been sitting in anger on a hill looking down on Nineveh. But the Lord continues to show he is patient and slow to anger, even with Jonah in the midst of this. He uses the objectless shade plant, and even when Jonah becomes angry, Jonah, uh, the Lord presses in and says, just like you pitied this plant, Jonah, should not I pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Just like Jonah had no right to be angry about the plant perishing, God has every right to be angry and grieved when any human perishes. He made us. He is our God, our creator. The Lord emphasizes this in his object lesson to Jonah. He should have pity and compassion on each one of his creatures. Grieves him when humans are so lost in sin and evil that they will never repent and turn to him. Our great God desires to intimately know each one of us. And he knows us to such a degree that it will our minds if we truly comprehended it. Listen to some of the biblical writers reflect on this. In Psalm 139, David reflects, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully. God made each one of us in our mother's womb. He knew us better than a father knows his child, than a mother knows her children. When we were being formed. Psalm 56, 8, the psalmist reflects, have kept count of my tossings. You have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? This is not just pure rhetoric or analogy. God watches each of our tears as they fall to the ground in the midst of our... He knows us more intimately than we can possibly comprehend. And in Luke 12, Jesus, our Lord, emphasized this to his disciples when they were anxious, and he was teaching them to not be anxious, but rather to pray. He said, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Our God's intimate knowledge of each one of us is we can even understand. I have no idea how many hairs I have. They're definitely decreasing year by year, but uh, God knows each one of them. Our God is not a distant, disinterested God who sits on high, set everything in motion, and now he looks down in judgment, just angry with how we're ruining everything. If that's your picture of God, then you're wrong. No. Yes, he hates sin. Yes, he wants to do away with it. Yes, he'll have to punish it. But that is not his main motivation. His main motivation is an abundant goodness. He is motivated by love for each and every one of his creations. That is why our intimate loving God sent the second trinity, Jesus, on a mission. That's why Jesus came down and dwelled among us so that we might have life. He came into the brokenness, the death, the sin, so that we might be restored to a right relationship with the Father. 
and our great Savior, he did not come grudgingly like Jonah. God didn't have to get a whale to deposit Jesus where he needed to be. Jesus was delighted to do the will of the Father. And when we repent, our great Savior's not angry like Jonah. No. He's delighting. He's getting a party ready for us so that we can celebrate together. And that's exactly what Jesus talks about in Luke 15, the parable of the lost coin, the lost sheep, the parable of the prodigal son. In Luke 15, Jesus says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So as they talk, mostly God talking, but hopefully Jonah listening, God reveals his character and his mission to Jonah. Our intimately involved, loving creator. And he's focused on others. And he cares abundantly for them and wants them to know him. But God is also a God of mission. He wants to bring salvation to humans and reconcile them to our Lord Jesus Christ. And though Jonah lived before Jesus, this was God's plan all along. Since Genesis 3, God has had a plan to restore this broken creation and bring us back to him. And if we want to move, even after we become a Christian, we still have that self-centered response in ourselves sometimes because we still have sin that we have to fight. If we want to move from that self-centered response to a God-centered response where we are delighting in what God is, even in the worst of our enemies, we need to become so immersed in what God is doing that it becomes our whole world. What do I mean by that? I am a person who just loves stories. I love books. I love movies. I love it. I've loved it from a very young age. I would sit at my grandpa's feet and listen to all the stories he could tell me all day. I would love it because I just love being wrapped up in experiences outside myself, things that I could never experience on my own. So I still remember one of my first books that I read all the way through uh, in like a couple of, in like a, literally a, a day, one summer, uh, when I was uh, pretty young. It was The Hobbit, and I just got so wrapped up in the story. And my mom kept saying, come, eat some food. I'm like, no, I'm so, I'm here. Because I was so wrapped up in the story. And that's what we need to happen in our lives. This is what is true. Our abundantly loving, good God who is on a mission to restore and redeem all of creation. We need to become so immersed in that that we're wrapped up in it. Earlier I had mentioned how our discomfort with our Lord's gracious gospel reveals our idolatry and becoming immersed in God's plan to redeem the whole universe, the whole creation. That's what's going to cause us to move out of idolatry and into a heart that loves everybody and can turn to them in grace. And part of that is recognizing that our identity is first and foremost as Christians, a follower of Christ. Any identity that comes before that is an identity that we need to put aside. Peter, writing to Christians who had been pushed out of Rome, stated, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for your own for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his light. Peter rooted them in their identity as God's chosen people, beloved, and then he put them on a mission to go out and proclaim who God was to the watching world. So Jonah forged the heart of God, a heart of abundant goodness, a heart of compassion and grace. 
not just to the ignorant pagans who didn't know any better and who were far off, but even to the prophet who should have known better, who should have been close. Both of them are called to come near to the God who has grace and love. And in Jesus Christ, that grace and mercy came down so that we might be restored and redeemed to the right relationship with God the Father. And this, well, we are possible to have a right relationship with God in Jesus Christ now. And that is something that is most clearly seen in what we're going to celebrate here today, the Lord's Supper, where we see that extension of welcome, where God wants us to come into his house and join him in a feast. That's why he broke bread with his disciples. He drank wine with them and said, I will celebrate this feast with you again one day. We're going to celebrate that today. I'll explain it a little bit. I'd like to ask the, the elders to come forward to prepare for administering it. It's going to work a little differently than we normally do. Normally, you come forward. It's, much, it's very easy. You are going to be coming forward today. But the way it's going to operate today, one elder will dismiss you row by row. You will come forward, and you will grab a little communion packet that looks like this. It's prepackaged. Nobody handled them without gloves, so they're completely safe. So you'll grab one of these, and you'll go back on the outer row to be seated. You'll go back to the same seat you were in. If you're sitting on the outer side, you can go in from the, um, the outside. If you're sitting on the two inner rows, just go all the way back and then come forward. Um, and so an elder will just row by row. The Lord's Supper should remind us of God's abundant goodness and grace. It's not just a reminder, though. It strengthens us and encourages us through the Holy Spirit. During his earthly ministry, Christ instructed his father to practice the Lord's Supper by eating the bread and drinking the cup in remembrance of him until he came, until he returned. The Lord's Supper is a family meal for those who have put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. I don't imagine that there's anybody who's part of the family here, but if there's not, we are so happy that you are here. But don't feel that you need to take this meal. It's not for you. We're so happy that you're here, and we would love to discuss what it means and what it is with you before you partake in it. If you have believed, if you are a Christian who has trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, come and feast. Let me pray for the Lord's Supper. Father God, we thank you so much that you are a God of abundant goodness, and thank you that you have poured out your lavish love on us, and that you have taken our sins upon yourself, Lord Jesus. Your body was broken so that we might be restored. Your blood was shed so that we were forgiven and adopted as daughters and sons. Thank you. We come before you knowing that we need to confess and repent of our sins, knowing that this week we have done things that are not pleasing in your sight. So we pray, Father God, I turn from that sin in joy because you have died in our place and forgiven us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.